Hello. In Doctor Who fandom, there is the concept of Behind the Sofa, a Doctor Who episode that is so scary for children that children watch it from behind the sofa so the Daleks or Monsters of the Week cannot see them. That is not the way that I grew up watching Doctor Who in the mid-1980s, for the simple reason that our sofa was flush up against the wall and there was no behind it. We had one small television upstairs on a cart in my parents' bedroom on the side wall. I would have to lie back against the side of the bed on the floor, watching, looking up, or in the basement where we had the larger 19-inch console TV. There was my father's easy chair, and I would either sit on the easy chair or I would be lying down on the floor in front of it, right in front of the TV, where my mother always said that the radiation on the TV would be bad for my eyes. You can see that my childhood was governed by a healthy fear of the manner in which I watched television. Of course, I didn't find Doctor Who all that frightening. I started watching it 11 years of age. There were a couple of moments in Doctor Who that did terrify me, though. Part 4 of Warriors of the Deep, the Sea Devil's eyes melting out due to hexachromite gas, and the following cliffhanger from Part 2 of Snake Dance. We are coming up next month as I record this on L.I. Who. Every year that I've been to L.I. Who, with the exception of the one year that I missed, 2017, I have run a cliffhangers panel where I screen for the audience the greatest and some of the not-so-great cliffhangers in the entire history of Doctor Who, both classic series and new. Almost every year, I run the following cliffhanger, and I explain to the audience how much it terrified me, I think the direction and the lighting effects on Tegan's eyes are so good that it doesn't really need a lot of explanation. I'm hesitant to play it since it does rely heavily on visuals, but to give you a taste of what's to come over the next hour or so, here is the audio of the cliffhanger to part two of Snake Dance, which so terrified me as a child, and if I'm in the right mindset, still terrifies me today. You are no longer necessary. Look at me. No, no, please. What are you doing? Look at me. No! Look at me. I'm not going to harm you. Look at me. <laughs> That's right. Look at me. Look at me. <laughs> Direction point! Direction point! A Doctor Who Podcast Network. Well, hi everybody! Welcome back to Doctor Who Literature, the podcast taking you through the world of the Doctor Who novelizations, put out by Target Books from 1973 onward in publication order. We're a member of the Direction Point Doctor Who Podcast Network. My name is Jason, and I'm your host on this journey, this very long journey. This week, we are back to the Target novelizations after last week's bonus episode with Ian Potter, and this is the ninth of ten straight published novelizations of Peter Davison TV stories. We are back in Season 20, 
and we are looking at the novelization of Snake Dance. There are only two more Season 20 novelizations left to go after this one, one coming up very soon, and one coming up quite a bit far down the road from now. In terms of me, you can also hear me on the most recent, as I release this, episode of Gallifrey's Most Wanted, my conversation with Ross about the Dalek invasion of Earth. Ross and I have been recording a lot lately for our respective shows. I will be recording with him later on the same day that this episode is released for a future episode of Gallifrey's Most Wanted, and I have already recorded him for an upcoming episode of this podcast. I will be on the road for most of August 2023. So at this point, just about all of those episodes have been pre-recorded so they can be released on my regular weekly schedule. I also had a recent episode of Trap One. I moderated a terrific panel on the audiobook adaptation of the making of Doctor Who, both the 1972 and 1976 Malcolm Hulk and Terence Dick's non-fiction target books on how to create a television series, most specifically Doctor Who, and some elements of Terence Dick's Doctor Who Monsters book is also mixed in on that audiobook adaptation, and that was me and Denise and Conrad and Cy, all great friends of this program as well. I will post links to both of those episodes in the show notes. And as this episode is released, I will be recording a Trap 1 episode the very next day, covering one of the new 2023 Target-branded novelizations. And I will certainly promote that episode on Doctor Who Literature after it is released as well. This week, pinch-hitting for me is the great Jim Sangster, one of my producers, logo designer, music coordinator, and general all-around champ. We have a very free-form and wide-ranging discussion coming up. We're going to talk about some of the classic Hollywood movies. We're going to talk about Superman. We're going to talk about accents. You're going to hear some great voices out of the past. And I was talking to Jim about my fascination with the late American broadcaster Howard Cosell. When the time comes, you will hear Jim do with almost no lead time and prep time whatsoever, and entirely of his own volition. He surprised me with a terrific Howard Cosell sketch, which I will insert at the appropriate point in the conversation that follows after the break. After my conversation with Jim, my review of the novelization of Snake Dance itself. So... Since there's not much news in the world of Doctor Who this week, let's get to it. This is Tim Trelaw. This is David J. Howe. I'm Peter Purvis. I am Sadie Miller. This is Lauren Cornelius. Larry, it's Fraser. For all things in the Doctor Who collecting world and beyond, the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast. I'm Larry Van Mersberg, and your host, and I've been collecting for 42 years. You're listening to Doctor Who Literature on the Direction Point Podcast Network. Keep turning the pages. And here he is. Welcome back, our correspondent in the field in London, the Lawrence Olivier to my Danny Kay. Jim Sangster, welcome back. I'm in my garden, silly. <laughs> Hello. 
I was, I was trying to think of a, a little quote to start off with and say hello, and I was really struggling because there's so much great dialogue in, in Snake Dance, but not a lot of it is sort of snappy and quotable and you know able to put on a T-shirt, so that was the only one I could think of. It's an incredible script, and it's very witty, but it's not big on one-liners for sure. Like the um, Six Faces of Delusion is a big setup. It's totally worth it when you get there, but it's a long setup. Yeah. Maybe, maybe she just said, get out! Go on, get out! That'll do. <laughs> maybe, maybe it needs the context to go with it, yeah. Your Janet Fielding impression, however, is a lot more on point than mine will ever be. <laughs> I have a few friends in Australia who are going to, oh, he's doing it again. He's pretending he can do the accent. Stop it. <laughs> I tried to do it on a recording a while back because I was reading out a Tegan dialogue passage from one of the novelizations, and I tried to do an on-the-spot, unrehearsed, spontaneous Janet Fielding Australian accent. Could not do it. Stopped the recording, re-recorded it. Was even worse. I said, "Fine, that's it. That's my best effort. I'm not doing it ever again." <laughs> on on, um, on our friends um, on Tony's podcast talking about uh, Target books, I did do a little bit of a to- uh, an Australian routine recently, uh, just because of the uh, the thing of Tegan addressing someone as sport and explaining it's it's a shorthand for British readers to go, "She's Australian." <laughs> Because of the whole thing of Australians answering their own questions. Like, what's your favourite boy's name, Bruce? What's your favourite <laughs> girl's name, Sheila? What's your favourite pastime sport? What's your favourite JCB, Digger? So it's it's something that in the 80s, loads of different comedians would be doing. And as a child of the 80s, I've been carrying on ever since. So, But not today. <laughs> not anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do not have your improvisational or ability with accents the stuff that you have been the the songs you've been recording for my show are incredible listen to them over and over again then we have another one coming up very i won't say which episode but we have one coming up very soon shortly after your arc of infinity uh ballad with multiple bad accents in that one you can you can play the game of guess the accent because none of them is a real one (laughs) but but they're all to present a flavor of the type of song it is so Hopefully, uh, also it's the first one I've done that wasn't just a straight pastiche. It's uh, it's a proper like, it's in a style, but it's it's original lyrics, and you know, um, it's probably the only one of that I'm, I'm really going to do. Oh no, there's one other. There's one other that's. Oh no, that is very heavily a pastiche. Ignore me. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, little th- a taste of things to come. See, my native accent is such a caricature in and of itself that I really can't do anything else. I've lived away from New York for long stretches of my life, and I've picked up some mannerisms from other states that I've lived in. However, it's just it's hard to get rid of the Brooklyn. So you had mentioned to me a while back, you were watching a documentary, an old documentary, where Isaac Asimov was interviewed. And based on his name, you were expecting him to have a Russian accent. And immediately yeah. you messaged me and said, you said he sounded like me. <laughs> Oh yes, 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 yes. I was really surprised because I just thought, and I, I know you'd said that there were like family connections and that, but um, that really threw me. It's a bit like when um, I used to work for the BBC Archives and we got these recordings of H.G. Wells, and um, I'd seen the interview with the young lad who played H.G. Wells in Time Lash, and he said, "You know, we don't know what he talked like, so uh, I just did my own version of it." And here's this recording of H.G. Wells, and you might think, 
what would a, a great literary god like H.G. Wells sound like? And you, and you might construct something in your head. And then when you get this very light, high-pitched South London accent saying, I foresee a time when in the future... And you go, no, that's not the voice I was expecting to hear. You know, it's... Mr. Wells, have you any uh, uh, solution for the very unhappy state of affairs that uh, is facing the world today? It seems to me that many things besides the pound are threatened with collapse. The financial credit system is not working today. We, are, we have increased the productivity of our, social, of our economic organization so greatly that a smaller and smaller proportion of people can produce everything that we need. Um, so I love that. Whenever you delve into the archives, which being of a certain age and a certain temperament, we all do nowadays. I think most of our time is looking backwards as much as forwards. And then when you, you discover something that you imagine is a familiar voice because you've read loads of their stuff and then you hear their actual voice. And sometimes it's, it's, it's a disappointment and sometimes it's just a, well, I wasn't expecting that. It's the same with Walt Whitman. I've not heard his voice directly, but Walt Whitman, being a native New Yorker, wrote about Brooklyn and its ample hills in the 19th century. Walt Whitman, on audio recording, supposedly has a very, very thick, old-school Brooklyn accent of the same type that was used effortlessly by Daniel Day-Lewis for the film Gangs of New York. So when you're reading the poetry of Walt Whitman, you're not expecting to hear that old thick, classic, totally stereotypical Brooklyn accent, but that is what Walt Whitman would have walked around speaking during his daily life. America, center of equal daughters, equal sons, all, all alike and dear, grown, ungrown, young or old, strong, ample, fair, Enduring, capable, rich, perennial with the earth, with freedom, law, and love. I was thinking of, like, with Walt Whitman, you know, there's a famous letter from Bram Stoker. Uh, He wrote this gushing love letter to Walt Whitman. And a lot of people have interpreted it in different ways and thought of subtext. And he's another one where I, I I don't know if there's a recording of Bram Stoker's voice. I don't think there is. Oh, it stands to reason there would be. But given given when he lived, he lived definitely in the middle of the audio. Not only that, but one of the plot points in Dracula is cutting-edge audio recording technology. Yeah. But I don't know whether any recordings have survived. I've not heard one. But in my mind, the voice I've got is of someone who's desperately trying to hide his Irish roots because he's hanging out in, in London. And I, even though I've still got flat vowels from the north, I I did that when I moved to London. Um, I had to learn an, a more neutral accent than my native Liverpool. When I got into a taxi, I never got into a taxi with a northern accent. It was always South London. So, you know, when I'm, I turn left of the lead, I was straight out onto the uh, cinema, you know. Um, a little bit more approximating a South London accent because I wanted to assimilate and didn't want to be charged like a tourist. I have been accused of sounding like the Big Finish interpretation of Frobisher, and I've also been accused of sounding like Joe Pesci, which there's there's been a very disturbing 
video making the rounds on Twitter, or I guess X as we're supposed to call it now, because Sinead O'Connor passed away a couple of weeks ago, a couple of days ago, I should say. And she had notoriety in the States because she appeared on Saturday Night Live in New York. I was away in college. This is the early 90s. And she had torn up a picture of Pope John Paul II. Joe Pesci hosted SNL the following week. And as part of his monologue, we don't know if Joe Pesci wrote the monologue himself or if Lauren Michael wrote it and had Joe Pesci perform it. But Joe Pesci then goes on SNL and threatens physical harm, saying, if I had been the host last week, I would have given her such a smack. And it's disturbing, and it's causing this massive reevaluation of who Joe Pesci is because he was willing to go out there and threaten physical violence upon a young female artist. And this is 30 years ago now, and the clip has been forgotten until until this week when it's been brought back to light. Really disturbing. Really, really, really upsetting. That's, yeah, I mean, it, I loved Sinead O'Connor. Really. Um, genuinely um, got very upset when her death was announced. Um, and it's difficult because Joe Pesci's an actor. He's famous for playing these certain roles. I, I've seen him in a few parts where he's not playing that role, but very few. He's usually the angry, uh, an angry terrier trying to nip at someone's heels, and and then you know peppering it with the sort of language that I would use in real life, but not on a podcast. Um, I'd be interested to hear what his response is now. I'd love to hear what his, you know, if if he would ever give a response to that now, because maybe maybe they were getting pressure to put out a statement and that was their way of doing it is getting an actor who's famous for playing that role to respond in that way. But that's unfortunate. It's like the internet to not jump on a cause and and ignore context and just leap on their own assumptions. Is it? So (laughs) Lauren Michael is famous for throwing performers under the bus. He did it to Ashley Simpson when Ashley Simpson lip synced a piece on SNL. When she came back later in the night to do her second number, somehow the lip sync version of her first number got played over her second performance and she just walked off stage in embarrassment and he reran that he reran that episode over and over again over the next two years anytime there was a week off they would show the ashley simpson episode again so that just could be lauren michael joe pesci is very tight-lipped about his personal beliefs in his private life even when he won the academy award for goodfellas his acceptance speech was five words long so i don't know who the real joe pesci is but if that was a part he was playing I seem to remember his acceptance speech was, thank you, it's my pleasure. Exactly. And obviously I've watched Goodfellas. Uh, I'm I'm desperately scrambling to think of a link (laughs) between Goodfellas and Snake Dance, by the way. Um, I'm sure I'll get there at some point. Maybe it's just, you know, ever since I was a kid, I always wanted to be an archaeologist or something. But uh, maybe that would... (laughs) 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 Or or maybe the... uh, Janissary band will come into some big brass number, you know. <laughs> Must I forever be a beggar? Or something, maybe. <laughs> I'm shoehorning desperately now. Ray Liotta would have done a very good Ambrose. He had been in the Sopranos, the Sopranos movie, The Many Saints of Newark, shortly before he passed away, Ray yeah. Liotta. A lot of crossover between Goodfellas and The Sopranos. So it was basically a casting pool. Anybody who was in Goodfellas appeared on The Sopranos at some point. That whole, um, yeah, the, the whole casting thing where you see an actor and you go, you're responding to a scene that's in The Godfather 3 <laughs> with another <laughs> actor who was in a scene with an actor who was in The Godfather 3. And, um, yeah, it all gets very sort of uh, meta, doesn't it? 
The Godfather 3 has a literal Doctor Who connection in that John Abeniri plays a British banker who has one line of dialogue. The problem is when Coppola recut The Godfather Part 3 during the pandemic and turned it into The Godfather Coda, he deleted John Abeniri's one line. Toby Haydock is in mourning as, a, as I'm sitting there, I'm sure he is. I've just thought of the, uh, the connection there then. So obviously Godfather 3, Tegan spends the whole thing going, just when I thought I was out, they pull me back in. No. Okay. So anyway, the cover for Snake Dance is lovely, isn't it? <laughs> it's interesting because we have just finished a run of purely photographic covers going back to book 70. This is book 83, but it comes out out of sequence. So it's really book 84 mm. doing almost doing a book almost every month. That's basically 18 months of our lives. That is only photographic covers. And now we have Andrew Skilleter back. Now Andrew Skilleter had done the art for the five doctors, but that's not a full cover painting that's five little sketches this is his first full cover painting for a davison story and this begins a run of two books where peter davison's photo cutout is popping out of the logo to bridge the transition between the photographic covers and then the season 21 books which are all full cover andrew skillet paintings i love this look i love the fact that peter davison is popping out of the logo it only happens two books in a row this is the first of the two so this is a great cover, I think, because you mix a really great painting with Peter Davison's photograph. I just think, from a design point of view, if you're going to do that, I mean, they did that with Tom Baker's face on on um, at least one book. Actually, was it Robot? The illustration of the original cover of Robot, where they got Tom Baker's face in the O. It was an it was, it was a painting of Tom Baker's face inside the O. That that was yeah. one of these '70s covers. Now I'm growing up in the '80s; those covers were no longer available, so I've never seen it in the wild. Yeah, only photographs. So for me, I, I find it quite an ugly design choice because basically the logo now reads Doer Who because Davison's blocking the, uh, the operative letters. But that cover artwork, first of all, yeah, it's Andrew Skillet at back. But it's unlike any of the other book covers in the range. So you've, you've, got, you've had the, um, the Nebula ones that we've had with uh, Chris Achilleus. Right. And then you get the, um, either a scene or the principal monster or villain. Uh, from Andrew Skiller, so that that kind of seems to be the the style. Um, and then with Alistair Pearson, we go back to the kind of complicated montage things of you know having some sort of um, background element merged in with the the, uh, the portrait. But this is really figurative because it doesn't represent a scene that happens in the thing. It doesn't show us anything that we actually see in the story. Um, it doesn't even conceptualize it, but it, what it does is it, it kind of sums it up as like, here's a coiled snake, and here's something that could be a gem, because they talk about a gem in, in the story, but obviously it's a, a faceted gem rather than a polished one. But it could also be the planet. So it's, it's hugely metaphorical. Um, and coming from all those, not just that they're photographic, but they're really badly chosen photographic covers, the... the each of them has got a picture that you can look at it now and go, I know of 10 other photos you could have chosen that are more dramatic and show it off, but you've chosen to pick the one where Peter Davison looks really, really bored on a beige background. But this one really leaps out. I mean, really leaps out. So good. It is an unusual fact of the target range, and it's one of the reasons why I do what I do on this podcast, but... So much discussion of the targets is solely related to the cover art and not what is underneath. So if you mention Modern Undead to a target collector, they're not going to talk about Peter Grimwade. They're not going to talk about Keith Shand. They're not going to talk about Wagner. They're not going to talk about the witty prose. All they're going to say is, oh, the cover is rubbish. 
And great, you cover art is a legitimate conversation to have, but it can't be the be all and end all of the discussion. There's so much more to the targets than just the cover. That being said, yes, I have the exact same opinion as you. You could read this two ways. Number one, it's an illustration of the gem being placed in the Mars mouth in the painting in part four, but that is almost certainly a planet because it's got the shape and it's got the cloud formation. So that would not be a typical polished gem. It could even be a crystal ball, couldn't it? Could be. So it's represent. It's doing a lot of doing a lot of work on that cover. A little too opaque, I think, to be a crystal ball. But that's one way of putting it. Because yes, a crystal ball features heavily in the, in the part one cliffhanger. But yeah, it's a it's a cover that you can debate and discuss, and not just oh, why did they pick a photo of Peter Davis and falling asleep at the console? So it's a much better debate to have. I mean, I just wonder what picture of Davison they'd have. I mean, would would they pick the one of him? rubbing his temples and trying to focus? Or would they just find something from a rehearsal moment where he looks completely unengaged? And <laughs> probably that, you know, they, if they were doing a photographic cover for this. I'm so grateful they didn't, though. And I do like the photo of Peter Davison wearing his season 19 hat. That's that's the Peter Davison that I am most fond of, that, that, that hat. So <laughs> That's the other thing, isn't it? I, I think you'll find that's the wrong Peter Davison from the wrong season. So, uh, yeah, it's wrong all, all together. I think you'll find. <laughs> if he had been wearing the sweater that he was wearing from the Awakening onward, that certainly would have set the cat amongst the pigeons. That would have been great. All right, so a couple of weeks ago, and right now, if, I know you guys can't see my screen, but the inset <laughs> of me on Zencaster is smudge staring at you and blocking my face. So for all intents and purposes, Jim is right now having an interview with my cat, Smudge. <laughs> it's going well. Ugh. <laughs> uh. Yeah, she, she's, she's lost her place now. She's much uh, has moved out of the way. She's, she's lost interest in the conversation. So a couple <laughs> of weeks ago, I had a panel on, and we did a very long breakdown as to whether or not Five Doctors is the greatest Doctor Who serial of all time, classic series. I think there's an argument to be made. I'm currently working on my top 60. I'll be doing a panel, I think, with Sean Lyon at L.I. Who. And we're going to be breaking down the top 60 all time from 1963 to 2022, which is all we've seen so far. Five Doctors, I think, is very much deserving of a high spot on that list, and not just number nine or number seven. But the panel, it was me, your fellow producer, David Barsky, as well as Graham Burke and Stacey Smith. We couldn't all come to a consensus that Five Doctors is the greatest of all time. Setting Five Doctors out of the equation and looking at non-anniversary stories, I think there's an argument to be made that Snake Dance is the greatest Peter Davison story of all. Now, I don't know if I would personally name it my number one because Castro Valva and Enlightenment and Caves of Androzani are all stories that I've watched a lot more than I've watched Snake Dance. But I think the argument is there that Snake Dance is the best of the Davison, maybe the best of the Eric Sayward era, if not the entire 80s. When did you first see Snake Dance and how do you break it down? Um, this is one of the, um, the run of those stories I saw on first transmission. So, um, but it's just before the first break in that run because, um, Modern Undead episode two, the one with the flashback I missed because I was in detention at school and came back too late, um, for a minor misdemeanor. Uh, but, but (laughs) it's that thing where you look back and you go, I was a good kid. And you now realize it's just an ADHD symptom that was undiagnosed at the time. But uh, yeah, so I watched this at the time. So I was sitting there in front of the TV with a, a grumbling mother going, oh, not this again. 
And I'd already been burned the previous year with Kinder because, like every single sane Doctor Who fan, I watched Kinder and I ignored the script, I ignored the performances, and I was just distracted by the flat grey floor under the leaves and the inflatable snake. And I, I said with confidence when I was filling out my survey form, this is the worst story of the season because I had such a short memory, I'd forgotten that Four to Doomsday and Time Flight existed. So <laughs> then um, I saw this one. And the benefit of, sna- of snake dance is it's, it's part of a learning curve where Christopher Bailey has worked out this is what you're going to struggle to achieve in a studio, this is what you're going to struggle to achieve to get past this particular script editor. This is achievable, so I'm going to write a script which is going to be achievable with the tools we've got. And so as a consequence, it becomes a really, really good, really achievable, really clever thing that is, um, I think, an incredible script. Um, but as as you grow older and, you know, I went to university, I studied literature, and then I read the unfolding text. I actually read the unfolding text for pleasure because I'm that stupid. <laughs> and then realized that a lot of the course that I was doing in, in university applied to this. And presumably the guys who wrote it had also just finished university or whatever. Maybe this was their thesis. But um, suddenly had an appreciation for Kinder that blew my mind and realized that I think Kinder, in terms of scripting and concept, is the best, certainly of the Davison run. So probably of the decade. Um, I think in terms of concept and writing, Snake Dance is right up there as well. I think it's a beautiful thing. Obviously, there are then concessions because of it's made in a production, uh, it's made in a studio. Um, it's run through Eric Sayward with his obsession to cut down any scene to half its length, uh, mm. regardless of whether that's appropriate or not. Um, and then when we come to the book, it's run through Terence Dix, who... Um, we love Terence Dicks, we love how efficient he is, but he turns it into a very literal story. So he tells us what is and what is happening. And occasionally gives us a little bit of doubt by going, oh, it was perceived this way, or the Doctor saw it this way, or whatever. But generally, I mean, especially with Kinder, he, he pretty much tells us this is literally what's happening all the way through, rather than we're in a dreamscape, we're in something which is a little bit um, less traditional. Certainly on TV, I think it's ambiguous whether or not um, Doug Dale can, he- can hear or see the vision that Tegan has seen in the mirror. Um, I think Terence's approach makes it a lot more, yeah, that's that's what's happening. Even though you get to think of, oh, well done, that's a ventriloquism act or whatever. I, I, th- I think in the book, it feels like Doug Dale has seen the whole performance and is really impressed. But on TV, I'm not so sure whether what Tegan sees is ever what someone else would see in the same room, unless they've also been possessed which I love. I love the fact that it's kind of, is this a special effect? Is it? Is it a metaphor or is it actually happening? Doctor Who has character types. If you break down most four-part stories or six-part stories, you're going to see the same types of character over and over again. You're going to see the white-haired base commander who possibly has mental health issues that get triggered as the story goes on. You have your charismatic Ralph Watson type who shows up and gives a bang-up performance for 10 minutes and then is killed halfway through part one. You have a low-level actor who plays the fourth man on the left on the base crew and is killed off in the end of part two at the cliffhanger. And in the case of Power of Kroll, the character is literally named for his death screen. Harg! (laughs) 
you have the uh, you have the beautiful but efficient woman who is sometimes a good guy, like in Seeds of Death, and is sometimes a bad guy, like in Robot. You have the sniveling, weaselly psychic, usually played by Alec Linstead or usually played by Milton Johns. Snake Dance, because you have a theater writer who's not particularly in with television tropes, does not give us any of those stock character types, with the possible exception of Chella, the reluctant ally. The characters that you get in Snake Dance are not like any other characters that you see throughout Doctor Who. So, could you break down for us? You have Lon, you have Ambril, you have Dugdale, who's a unique character in the show, you have Lady Tana. These are fascinating types for me. It's one of the reasons why I come back to Snake Dance as an adult, and it's why I think it's got a good claim to being one of the best 80s scripts. You know, um, <clears throat> the, the example I'd use is um, the way that the characters are used for exposition. I think it's um, astoundingly well-written for that. Just as an example, there's um, I'm not going to name names because that would be cruel, but there's a comic book show on Disney Plus at the moment, and it's all about conspiracy theories. And it's a perfect example of someone who's read that book by Robert McKee about how to write a script and not really understanding what he meant. So there's like a scene between two men in a pub and one asks the other if he knows, do you know how difficult my job is? Because I'm black. And the other character goes, yes, I do know how difficult your job is because I'm black as well. And then the first man says, well, I'm going to fire you now. And then the second man walks out angry. And the only thing we've learned from this scene is that the first man thinks he has the power over the second man, and as an audience, we don't think he does. But we've also learned that the the author of this scene thinks he's been really clever in acknowledging you know, that, that thing, the, the woke word. <laughs> he's acknowledging yeah. racial tensions, and he's, he's acknowledging that it's a hard world and all this. But really what he's doing is he's showing off, look at me, look what I've done, and he's really visible in the script. This particular show, I'm not going to name it, it's a terrible, terribly written show. It's got loads of scenes with loads of characters who walk in, they have a conversation, explain things they already know, and then there's a dramatic flip at the end because that's what you have to do. That's what Robert McKee says you have to do with every scene. So in in Snake Dance, it begins with a mother telling her bored son that he should take an interest in the cultural history of their planet. And we might find this familiar because... It's what parents do, isn't it? It's uh, Kids always resent the opportunity for more school. So we're kind of on the son's side straight away, even if he's a, an absolute brat. But she's hired a local historian to help educate the son, and she talks enthusiastically about the historian's predecessor. So we learn in this conversation that the mother has a passing interest in history, or at least an awareness that she should know more about it, largely because of the skills of the old historian who we've not met yet, even though he's the old man who we saw in the first scene. And we then meet the new historian, and he fails to get the interest of the son, and the mother's saddled with him, and she can barely hide a a yawn when when he's talking. And it's obvious that um, the historian has lost his audience. I know the irony of me saying this in the middle of a podcast where I'm waffling on, but... (laughs) <laughs> um, so it's not that 
um, the mother doesn't like history, we learn that Ambril is just really bad at his job. And we learn that he's bad at his job by the way that the, the characters react to him. He's full of self-importance. And, and meanwhile, through the plot de- developments, the son discovers more about the planet's culture than the historian could possibly know. Because unlike the historian, he has the benefit of knowing that the legends are true. And um, Christopher Bailey achieves all of this through really natural feeling conversations, just characters coming in, having a conversation. They're not saying something, oh, as you know, you know, because you know the history, this is what we're going to be doing today. There are two characters, and one knows slightly more than the other, but they both don't know the full picture. They meet another character who thinks he knows the full picture, but really doesn't. And as a consequence, they ask loads of questions or pose loads of questions that the show is going to answer. And all the way through it, Christopher Bailey's invisible. You never get the sense of an author going, look how clever I'm being here, because he crafts characters who feel like they actually live, even though it then gets pushed through the prism of Eric Sayward, who I don't think has those those skills at all, but um, never mind. New York City, as I'm sure you're aware, is not one geographic location. New York City is an archipelago. So the five boroughs are spread across three different islands and the mainland, but there are also numerous smaller islands that surround us. So you have Governor's Island, you have City Island, you have North Brother Island, which is uh, rather famous for macabre reasons. You also have Rikers Island, which has been a long-running prison, may be soon dismantled and decommissioned. Um, I'll let other people discuss that. But you also have Roosevelt Island, which is a tiny, narrow spit of land in the East River, directly between Manhattan and Queens. You can see it in the Daleks take Manhattan. As the Dalek is interrogating Diagoras high atop the Empire State Building, it's night, and there's this gorgeous photographic plate of New York City at night lit up, having this really remarkable conversation where Dalek is listening to Diagoras talk about why New York is such an amazing city, and it literally changes the plot because they decide to recruit him to become the first human Dalek because they like the cut of his jib. However, they used the wrong photographic plate. Roosevelt Island in 1931, 1932 would not have had that many buildings on it, and it wasn't called Roosevelt Island back then. It was called Welfare Island. In the 19th century, and I'll refer you to the Bowery Boys episode on this, Roosevelt Island was primarily used for public health. There were smallpox hospitals on the southern tip, and there were insane asylums on the northern end. Nellie Bly, the crusading journalist, did a remarkable expose about what was going on in the mental hospitals. And now, on the north end of Roosevelt Island, just below the lighthouse, is a remarkable sculpture series commemorating the work that Nellie Bly did. And it's six faces, three and three, and then there's a seventh face at the end. I was there last year. Maybe I'm not describing it very well, but when I first saw it, I wasn't thinking, oh, Nellie Bly. I wasn't thinking the history of 19th century medicine. I wasn't thinking about the horrors that went on. And that insane asylum is now luxury housing. It's called the Octagon. We actually took a tour of there many years ago, and I've known people who've lived there. So you could live in what used to be an insane asylum if you want. But when I saw that sculpture, all I could think of is, oh, my God, it's the six faces of delusion. So I took a selfie with my face in the middle saying the sixth face of delusion is the is the wearer's own. Because <laughs> of course you would, yeah. But that's the point that I want to get at. That may be my favorite scene of all of 1980s Doctor Who because it's not related to the plot. 
it's a secondary character being pompous. And it's the doctor who, the doctor needs to get this man on his side in order to stop the ceremony. But what the doctor doesn't know is that there are so many crackpots on this planet who come out of the woodwork every 10 years and try and stop the ceremony. The doctor doesn't have any innate credibility with this guy. He has one chance to get Ambril on his side, and instead he humiliates Ambril in front of the Federator's wife and Ambril's assistant. So... The scene is not related to the plot per se, but it's a great character moment, and I just love the moment, and when I see this real-life sculpture that commemorates a very important bit of New York history, all I can think of is snake dance. <laughs> it is it is a pivotal moment, though, because you'd think, like, whenever uh, certain people are going through a script and they go, oh, this needs to come out, it's not advancing the plot at all. And the weird thing about snake dances, there are loads of scenes like that where if you were being brutal and you were removing stuff to, to save time or to make them make them meaningful and important for the plot, you'd lose a lot of this. But every single one of them does advance the plot. Because in that scene, firstly, Ambrel has gone from dismissive to, I want him out of my face. I want this man away. So he, he suddenly made his mind up, as opposed to being always annoyance like a, a lot of the other ones. He's now absolutely determined to not listen to the Doctor. But Chela completely flips. And there's a beautiful thing that Jonathan Morris does when the Doctor talks about the dark places of the inside. And there's just this little flare of recognition and terror. And he he looks at Ambril going, oh, my God, he knows something that, that he shouldn't know. And maybe there's some, some truth in it. The flash of recognition from Chela convinces Ambril that his assistant is also a crackpot and should not be listened to. But it convinces Chela to become an ally. Mm. So later on, he won't bring a key to the Doctor because that's crossing the line, but he will bring the Doctor a vital piece of information that will propel us further into the plot. Uh, all the way through that, there are loads of little things that you look at and you go, why is that there? You know, things like the, the spiral staircase that people comment upon, which, because they were trying to save money, was taken from the set of A Song for Europe, which might need unpacking for people who aren't from from the UK. So you, you've heard of Eurovision, the thing where loads of people uh, in the spring go mental about in Europe because it's it's a big historical um, ceremony, a competition where we write songs and celebrate culture to bring us all together. But what it actually does is reaffirm cultural divisions and prejudices. And um, it, a lot of countries have a support show that leads up to it, which is how do we select our song for Eurovision? In Sweden, they've got uh, Melody Festival, which is bigger than American Idol. It's just this huge couple of months long running campaign where they just keep eliminating song after song after song and then bringing some back for a second chance. And then they pick the first song that we all liked in the first place. And that becomes the one that represents them at Eurovision. In the UK, we occasionally have a selection process where the public votes for it. And the song for Europe, <laughs> this is a long-winded way of saying... The thing in the background, which they've got from another production, which is created for a completely different concept, not even for a drama. It was created for the selection show for some nice dressing in the background of the set is a spiral staircase, which looks like the coiled, coiled snake that Lon was holding in the oh. statue. And by sheer beautiful coincidence, we've got this beautiful metaphor in the back of the, the set of the coiled staircase. We've also got the snake on, on Lon's ear to reinforce this. We've got the um, shimmering little curtains outside the um, the soothsayer's tent, which look like scales. 
all the way along. There are these little details, and it's one of those beautiful moments where everyone's pulling in the same direction. Absolutely love it. It is another trope in Doctor Who, and I'm not sure how aware Christopher Bailey would have been of this, but when you only have X amount of space in the studio and you can only fit X number of sets, it makes perfect sense to make one of those sets a prison cell. It's good for exposition. It's very easy to assemble. It's low cost. Then you can use whatever budget you save a building the prison cell to build an elaborate flight deck or um, banquet hall or what have you. So especially in the John Pertwee era, there are some episodes that take place entirely in prison cells. Most famously, Frontier in Space, the Doctor is imprisoned in every single scene between Part 1 and Part 4. It doesn't really join the main plot until he gets out of a prison cell in Part 5. Snake Dance Part 3 is one of those episodes where the Doctor spends the entire episode in a prison cell. But number one, it's interesting retroactively because it kind of resembles one of the sets that Anthony Hopkins was kept prisoner on in the Jonathan Demme's Silence of the Lambs. And also, as you say, interesting things happen inside of that prison set because Cella brings the Doctor a diary, which helps unlock the plot. And then Nissa gets to play Jailbreak. So is this Christopher Bailey riffing on the Doctor Who trend to have Part 3 be the exposition episode set in a prison cell? Or is he using this in some novel and creative, deconstructive way? Very possibly. <laughs> I mean, you've got effectively two main, well, three main sets. I mean, you've got um, Ambril's office, you've got the, the family home, and you've got the uh, the bazaar. Um, and, and then, of course, you've got the cave system and the, the TARDIS and the prison. Uh, and the TARDIS apparently was, they're all shot last because they didn't require any other of the regulars so that all the TARDIS scenes were done out of order, which they didn't do in the 60s and 70s, really. They tend to just do everything in the order that they needed. But for this, they did it by set, which I think is interesting. Um, that, that I love the fact that the, the set designer just decided if we pulled the, the bars apart, it just becomes a bit more visually interesting, as opposed to just, that'll do. And all the way along, there are little touches that you think, um, like a lot of the sets have come from stock, but they've dressed them beautifully just so it's distracted and you wouldn't really notice that um, they're from stock. And then Fiona Cumming shoots them beautifully. And when I was looking at the bizarre scene, I was thinking, there are a lot of extras there. And it's only when I started studying it and thinking, I'm not sure if that's the same man who was wearing that hat in the previous scene, but the fact that he looks taller and he's got a different face, even though I'm recognising the hat, I think maybe the extras are going, right, for this scene, swap the hats, move them around so we look like different people. And it, it oh. creates this image of, it, it is a bit like um, watching Casablanca. And that, there's a beautiful crane shot where the camera is looking down on Nyssa in the, the bazaar, and then it pulls almost to eye level, and then follows her in a little bit. And it just creates this thing of, it's not that they're um, aiming the camera carefully to avoid showing the edges of the set, because there are no edges of the set. This is a real town, and it's a real area. And unusually in Doctor Who, you don't get the sense of this one town being representative of the whole culture, because you've got the visiting federa uh, Federator's son and his wife, and they're commenting on the fact that, oh, this isn't like our home, and this, you know, we're here as guests, so there is a world beyond this one little street and the, the two little offices that we get to see. Now you make a Casablanca reference and you talk about the way that the camera is following Nyssa. That was almost certainly Fiona Cummings way of getting into the script because Nyssa was meant to be a teenager. This is her saying visually, here's looking at you kid. 
brilliant. Yes, yes, I agree with that entirely. <laughs> I was explaining to my daughter yesterday morning because she's now nearly as tall as I am, and I was explaining how when they made Casablanca, because Ingrid Bergman is quite a bit taller than Humphrey Bogart, they had to do quite a bit of creativity to make Humphrey appear slightly taller. And there's photographs of these six-inch lifts that Bogie is wearing to make him just high enough to uh, be a little bit above Ingrid Bergman's eyeline. Oh, <laughs> it's, it's a beautiful thing, um, that film. I mean, I'm just thinking of, um, you know, if only Amber had said something like, snake dancing here? <laughs> I'm shocked, shocked. <laughs> I'm shocked, I tell you. Casablanca is one of the absolute greatest movies ever made and getting in a baseball connection uh, very well-known <laughs> baseball general manager Theo Epstein Theo Epstein has been the general manager of the Red Sox and the Chicago Cubs and he was able to break long decades long World Series title droughts for both of those teams his grandfather was one of the two Epstein brothers who wrote Casablanca I, I wish I understood most of the words you just said it just went a bit Charlie Brown's teacher to me because he talked about baseball but I'm sure it was good <laughs> I'm just being cheeky. Don't worry. <laughs> I have that effect on people when I talk about Maybe that. at the end, what we really needed is for Ambrel and uh, Dojin to walk off with you know, one of them saying, this could be the beginning of a beautiful friendship. <laughs> you know, there's, there's room there for a Casablanca snake dance edit. There, there certainly is. It, and I think it, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't, wouldn't struggle to make it happen. It's, uh, it is very, very similar. I, 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 you know, this, is, this is what you do. <laughs> when the Mara is having the perfect the mind's eye the big mind's eye placed in the Mara's mouth. Everybody in the everybody in the cave links arms and starts singing the Marseillaise. And that's their way of resisting <laughs> the Mara's mind control and it works. Or oh, when uh, yeah they're, they're, they're trying to say, oh how how do we get the mind's eye? You must remember this <laughs> And now we can do a now we can do a ten minute riff on uh, Karina Longworth's podcast, You Must Remember This. <laughs> Won't you? <laughs> Join us, won't you, as we mash up snake dance like Casablanca. Yeah. It's funny thinking I'm just I'm just diverting back to the topic as quickly as I possibly can, because otherwise I'll be here all day. Um thinking about the cast, and I mentioned uh, Jonathan Morris. You've got a really good cast, but when I'm what year is this? This is eighty this is um the end of January eighty three, isn't it? Yes. So I'm um by the end of this I'm about a week away from turning twelve years old. So I've not seen John Carson in Hammer Horror movies because, frankly, they're far too scary for me at that point. Um, but you know, later on, older viewers might know him from the Hammer movies like Plague of the Zombies and Taste the Blood of Dracula. Um, but something I'm watching right now is the 1980 BBC adaptation of the story of Oppenheimer. Ah. Uh, I've just finished episode five and they've just done their first test explosion and it's quite terrifying. And... One of the guest stars is Milton Johns, funnily enough. Um, but the narrator of the entire show is John Carson. Huh. Now, my parents had a very liberal view of, you know, as long as it's appropriate, they'll let me watch anything. So I did actually watch Oppenheimer in 1980. So even though I wouldn't have known it, I would have had an experience of John Carson. Uh, I knew Sam Waterson as a consequence of that show before I saw him in anything else. Um, but for me, I mean, obviously, uh, Martin Clunes wasn't famous. This is his first TV he went on to become hugely famous, um, largely thanks to sitcoms like No Place Like Home with William Gaunt. Um, and then obviously Men Behaving Badly. Yes. And just to con consider continuing the theme that we often resort to, 
Men Behaving Badly, which had a US version as well. Correct. Yeah. Not nearly as uh, long-running or prolific or beloved, but there was a US version of Men Behaving Badly. Yeah, and then... Now, this is very, very shaky. So if this turns out not to be true, blame the people who told me who worked adjacent to the BBC drama department in 2003 to 2005. Um, Apparently, Mal Young's list of actors who he thought would be a good Doctor Who for the revival included Martin Clunes. And among the young prospective actresses who were interviewed was S Club 7's Rachel Stevens. So in a parallel universe, there could have been now on BBC One, Martin Clunes and Rachel Stevens star in Doctor Who. <laughs> Just imagine that. It's funny how you talk about actors' names and how they have different meanings in different cultures. When I saw the name John Carson in the credits, and I would have been 11 or 12 when I first saw Snake Dance... That has a very different meaning in the United States because Johnny Carson was the of king course. of late night television for a little more than 30 years, first in New York on The Tonight Show and then brought it to Los Angeles. And in the 70s and 80s, everything in American households stopped at 1130 so the parents could watch at least the first half hour of The Tonight Show, Johnny Carson's monologue on the news, and then the first the first one or two guests. And then there was usually a comedian or a musical guest in the last act, hour-long show. So when I saw the name John Carson, I was like, wait a minute, that can't be Johnny Carson, can it? <laughs> the same way that the, the, the British movie Bugsy Malone was on endlessly in, in America in the early 80s because Scott Baio and Jodie Foster were both huge names in America in the early 80s. Scott Baio is now a big name on Twitter for all the wrong reasons, but <laughs> the piano player in Bugsy Malone is played by a young man named Michael Jackson. So I'm like, wait a minute, is that the... Michael Jackson, of course it's not. It's just the same, a very common name. But it's one of those things where you watch the credits of a British show and you get the entirely wrong idea as to what's going on because you're looking at it from the American perspective. Although I will say when I saw Shakespeare in Love in the theater, I was probably the only one who immediately recognized Martin. It's like, oh, it's him. It's Lon. <laughs> because he, he does have a great face. It's that weird thing with um, – it's been lost really, the, the idea of a, a character actor or someone who's got a character face. Like um, Hilary Sester, who plays the fortune teller, you wouldn't get a face like that on TV anymore. And it's a real shame because she, she does the part beautifully. Um, but I'm not going to really delve into that, but you know, there's a certain aesthetic that people have stopped casting for. Um, nowadays, for a bit plot, you, you wouldn't get an actress that interesting to look at, I think, uh, unless they were doing some sort of prosthetic or it was someone famous in a wig. Mm. Um, weirdly, though, it, as I say, because I was a nearly 12 years old when this went out. The only member of the cast I recognised, apart from the regulars, was Jonathan Morris. So for me, he was the star. He was the guest star. And does he only come in in episode two? Is that his first scene in episode two? Yes, I'm pretty sure you're correct. He's quite late into it anyway. Um, Because he'd been in the BBC adaptation of Beau Geste, which had been out about a year or two before. And it was directed, I didn't know this at the time because I didn't know directors' names, it was directed by Douglas Camfield. And obviously that's oh. the story of the French Foreign Legion, you know, the, the, that thing. And considering that Douglas Camfield made a lot of his 1970s Doctor Who's on videotape, on location, and he wanted to do a story about the French Foreign Legion, this is another one of those 
Tonight on BBC One, a parallel dimension episode of Doctor Who, it's Douglas Camfield's French Foreign Legion story, the, the Red Fort or whatever he would have called it. So I, I recently watched the, the old adaptation of Beaugest and I was watching it going, this is a bit like what it would have been like if Douglas Camfield had done this, but it stars Jonathan Morris. Well, Sam Watterson, you mentioned from the BBC Oppenheimer, I'm going to be seeing, as soon as this recording is over, I'm running out to my Oppenheimer screening on Friday afternoon in Manhattan. Uh, so, so you have a, a Manhattan project lined up, have you? Uh, well, that's actually not <laughs> the bad pun you think it is, because it's literally called the Manhattan Project, because it was headquartered in Manhattan. And in fact, the federal agency that oversaw the Manhattan Project is still in Manhattan today, so... It wasn't just called that because it was named after a cocktail. <laughs> I, <laughs> I love it when I'm stupid and then the universe goes, no, this is where you actually are. This is the real world. <laughs> Bodily dragging this conversation back to Oppenheimer before we drag it back to Snake Dance. <laughs> Sam Waterston, when I was a very scared young lawyer, barely out of law school, barely 24 years old, and I had to appear in court before judges who were in their late 60s, very intimidating, I realized that my own voice wasn't going to cut it, especially being a New Yorker with a thick New York accent in the Midwest, um, where, uh, you know, I basically sounded like I was doing a bad Joe Pesci impersonation all the time. I needed other voices to model myself on, to give myself a crutch for security um, and a sense of confidence in court. So I latched upon the American sportscaster Howard Cosell, whose voice you could probably imitate. I'm sure it's penetrated the UK enough that you probably know what Howard Cosell sounds like. It's a very distinct staccato style of speaking. Welcome back to the sacred caves on Manusa. Round two of the battle of the century. The reigning champion of the universe, Australia's Tegan Jovanka. And her gargantuan challenger from Ireland, a behemoth called Omara. Omara rises to the challenge, a seven-foot tower of strength, while Jovanka is a shell of my former self, beset by fear. That... But wait, this is incredible. Down goes Omara. Down goes Omara. I'm not sure there's anything left. The lightweight champion is as poised as she can be. The victor at last. And with that final stage, let's tell it like it is. Omara is defeated. Vanquished to the dark places of the inside. Here on Manusa, it's hard to tell what might happen next. They may live happily ever after. Then again, they may not. Next up on the Doctor Who Literature Podcast, we have the Round the Solar System Yacht Race. This is Howard Cosell. We'll be right back. Because I was watching, at that point on cable, there was the Classic Sports Network, which was showing a lot of Howard Cosell stuff from the 1970s, from Monday Night Football and the Olympics and, uh, and boxing and baseball all over the place. But I also linked upon Sam Waterston, who was playing uh, the lead district attorney, the lead prosecutor in 
the original American version of Law and Order, which later becomes Chris Chibnall's Law and Order UK, starring Peter Davison and Freema Adjaman. Many of the episodes of which were based on original American Law and Order scripts, starring Sam Waterston. But he also has a very distinctive way of speaking, and he is now our foremost Abraham Lincoln actor, impersonator. So I used Sam Waterston's voice a lot in my young career to get me going. And it's I don't I don't do it anymore because I now have my own voice. But Sam Waterston, I owe a lot of my professional career to sounding like Sam Waterston. So the fact that he plays Oppenheimer is is just fascinating to me. I'm gonna have to track that down. It's great because it's um a lot of actors who are British and you can tell. <laughs> There's uh, a children's art program done by a fellow called Tony Hart. And in the eighties, they uh, it's called it was called Take Heart. And uh, in the eighties, they decided that what Tony Hart really needed was a plasticine sidekick called Morph, and an in-studio buffoon who just fall about and, and ruin everything by putting his foot into a bucket. And he's played by one of the actors who's one of the the lesser-known characters in here. And his name has just gone out of my head. Uh, but uh, it's quite distracting when I'm, I think his name might actually be Bennett. <laughs> But the character's name is Mr. Bennett. And I'm watching this drama and then suddenly they're saying, oh, uh, you, uh, have you got any ideas for this this bomb we're going to do? And I'm going, that's Mr. Bennett off Take Heart. Oh, no, it's completely ruined. I can't take this seriously at all now. <laughs> Luckily, he's only in it a very, very little bit. I think it was the wedding of River Song at the beginning when time goes haywire. And they brought in one of the American co-hosts of a show called The View, Meredith Vieira, to be on Doctor Who for a 30-second voice cameo. I think while we're thinking of actors, there's two that I want to jump into. Uh, one, obviously, Brian Miller as Dugdale. Yes. So, I mean, the elephant in the room is who he was married to at the time. You know, I mean, he was married to until um, Elizabeth Sladen's death. Um, and in the Doctor Who world... Obviously, he's uh, he's got a, a small role in uh, Sarah Jane Adventures episode, but he's also in Peter Capaldi's first episode, Deep Breath. He's the tramp whose coat gets stolen. Yes, and so it's just lovely that you know there's an actor who he's there on his own merit. I mean, it's a brilliant performance. I love the way he plays the showman with the dual accent. You know, like a lot of you know, talk about the traditional ways of of doing this sort of thing. You know, and we've seen that in in Doctor Who in the past with different showmen who have their show voice and then their real voice, you know, when he goes, uh, uh, amazing things behind here, children half price, and just slips that in, you know. Um, but for British viewers of a certain age, um, I, when I was watching the, the DVD the other night and I noticed on the production subtitles, they, they make a point of saying, Lon's bodyguard is played by Bob Mills. And then I don't know whether my... Um, DVD skip the track or whether it just doesn't explain beyond that or whether the assumption is everyone knows who Bob Mills is but 40 years later I don't think he's as famous as he once was and he's certainly not famous outside of the UK. Bob Mills was a stand-up comedian um, it was quite unusual during the 80s because every stand-up comedian was was very left-wing and he I don't know whether he's right-wing but he's always said he's not left-wing, he's, he's, he's quite uh, an oddball, he's uh, an outlier in the field at the time well, he pre presented a show called In Bed With Me Dinner, echoing In Bed With Madonna. And um, you can see some of the clips of it on, on YouTube. It's just this sort of surreal blend where he starts off mimicking the title sequence of the 60s, The Prisoner, walking in and, and resigning, and then goes onto the set, and the set is the prisoner's front room. 
And then he just does these monologues of basically lies of, uh, oh, yeah, my career's been going in this way and I've got this publisher doing that. And, and he just tells really surreal jokes and sews them all together under an, a pretend narrative of this is his life. And it's, uh, it's a fascinating thing to see. He, got, he was on a lot of TV. In the especially in the nineties, he presented you know uh, game shows and he was a panelist on different game shows. But he's just there, quite visible as Lon's bodyguard, and he's the one who seizes the Doctor um, and gets him into a, a wrestle lock, you know. Um, so I just want to point him out and give him a shout out because I was a fan of his uh, many years later when he became a comedian. So that's not a name that I would know, although I did recognize when the Kinda DVD came out and they revealed that Johnny Lee Miller plays one of the young Kinda children, obviously he's uh, become a much bigger name in, in the States for the past couple of decades. Um, so that's Kinda rather than Snake Dance. But the name Jonathan Morris to Doctor Who fans also now has a whole other meaning because Jonathan Morris wrote several excellent novels and big finished audios. And as as he often says, you know, they are the same person. They are completely the same person. They're not com- two completely. They are completely different people. Yeah, they're completely <laughs> different people. I have to point out, in terms of cross promotion, that Brian Miller and Elizabeth Slade's daughter Sadie was also on the show, episode twenty-seven, yes. Pyramids of Mars. So, giving a shout out to the Brian Miller family there. I've always made a policy of talking about things that I love. You know, I want to be passionate. I want to be enthusiastic because, funnily enough, there's plenty of people who will spend time telling you that you hate stuff. So um, this is probably the story that we've picked to discuss that in novel form I like the least. I love the TV version, and it's just because, as I said earlier, Terence does a good job at, at doing a very literal transcription of what you see on screen. But I really wish that Christopher Bailey could be persuaded to do the novelization again, like Target have been doing in recent years. You know, um, do a David Fisher on, on, on this, and especially Kinder, because I don't know whether he can write a novel. I don't know whether he's got a novel in him, but um, just on the, the basis of those two episodes, th- those two stories, I would love to see novels by Christopher Bailey that take a more metaphysical approach. There are things that I like about Terence's novelization, and I'll break them down on the audio essay in a few minutes, although it's going to be much shorter than my usual. There's some chapter titles that I think are very good. There are some points where Terence is commenting on the budgeting and the studio production that I think are very apt and clever. And he also takes a lot of deleted scenes from part four and reinserts them into the text. This is one of those stories that first aired on my PBS station. Well, the first time that it aired was my first week as a fan, so I missed it entirely. The second time that it aired, Doctor Who had moved from 7 p.m. to 11.30 p.m., so I could only watch on Friday night. So I watched part two, which has that terrifying cliffhanger with Tegan's eyes turning red at, at the stroke of midnight. So that scared me to bits for a long time. But I saw Snake Dance in its entirety, much later in my fandom. So I was only familiar with it via the book for the longest time. And I preferred the book to the, to the Kindle book. So I'll have some good things to say about the novel, novelization, but you're right. It is not very fruitful ground for discussion. It's not one of Terrence's best. It's definitely one of his more run-of-the-mill efforts. And now that I've said that, I am positive that next week, James Curry-Smith is going to do a sub-stack about why this is the most clever novelization of all time. Because <laughs> he always finds the things that I miss. It's, uh, let's hope he does, because I'd love to read that. I'd, 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 I love it when someone can show you another way of looking at it going, oh, it's, it's, not, it's not what you thought. 
I mean, I, I try that <laughs> as best as I can, but but uh, you know, James is exceptionally clever and a lot more well-read than I am. So I'd love him to do that. See, he's he's going in the order in which he watched the stories, and I'm going in the order in which the books come out. So there's a lot of overlap. So he is often doing an essay that comes out a week or two after my episode, and he completely explodes something that I said. So I probably should just put the show on pause for a month and wait to catch up with him. <laughs> and then they'll find another way of undermining you as well. Yeah, it'd be all right. It's funny you mentioned the um, like the red eye effect, because. Um, Obviously, we've just found out that the um, the season twenty Blu-ray is well on the horizon. Anyway, and I was watching the trailer for that and seeing that they're boasting there's going to be new special effects for Snake Dance. Yes. And a bit like with Kinder, I'm thinking really because that's one story that, with with the exception of one specific scene, does not need new special effects. The special effects are part of that you know very much part of the time. They reflect the pop music of the time. I mean. It's often been said that Doctor Who is as much influenced by Top of the Pops as it is any other drama. But that one snake bothers me because they've gone through kinder and they know that the building to this thing where they've got a, a physical manifestation of a giant snake and so they built an inflatable prop. And then for the DVDs, they, they do a really good CGI snake. It's one of the very few special edition or improved special effects that I think actually improves on the original. But... um. For Snake Dance, you've got the knowledge that they're going to be needing this snake at the end of the show. And they know that they can't do a realistic snake. But so they don't slow down the recording, they record the snake separately and do it as an insert, a video insert. And it's a a prop. So they, they've got this prop in the corner of the set and, and, and they're going to be doing it as a video insert and, and putting it in later. But on the DVD, Fiona Cummings said, oh, we had real snakes and we were filming these snakes. And in fact, there was one shot of a snake that I filmed and then I realized I didn't need it because it wasn't serving the story. And I'm sitting there watching this documentary thinking, you had access to real snakes and you know that you're going to be doing the manifestation of the Mara at the end as a video insert, a special effect that you're going to overlay. Why aren't you using a real snake? What What are the laws? What are the... Um, Animal protection laws that mean that you can film a snake if it's curled around the twig, but you, and you can probably, for a documentary, film a snake attacking the camera or, or whatever. But you're still so wedded to the idea that you need a prop snake. And it's one of the only things that I think that is a, a misstep in the whole production, really. But again, as with Kinder, people don't really talk about how wonderful the video effects are. They talk about the one effect that doesn't work. So... I don't know whether a CGI snake's going to fix that one scene for Snake Dance because the rest of it is so good. Hopefully it will be as good as the one we see in in the Kinder DVD. But it still makes me think, why couldn't they have just used an actual snake? I like the part one cliffhanger effect where the snake leaps out of the shattering crystal ball. But that, I suppose, probably has room for a more contemporary look. I just prefer I prefer the original effects. I prefer to watch the show as it was in terms of um, give me a look. At, I want to know what it was like in 1983. I don't want to see a modern-day interpretation of the same effect. And I don't really understand the... I mean, I, I get, like, if, if the snake is the one thing that is failing kinder, then, which I, I think it is, then I understand the desire to fix it. And they do something which is... It feels quite sensitive to the time. It looks really good. But 
they don't replace every single effect. So you've got the the, the Blu-rays of uh, season twenty-two, and you've got Varos and Carful with video effect or video shot model effects. They haven't even put a film effect on it. So this is when my little fan brain goes, okay, if you're going to do these effects, fine. If you're going to update them, fine. But do it across the board. But doing new effects for Earthshock, it doesn't need them. The model effects are gorgeous. Doing new effects for um, Enlightenment is baffling because you're replacing model effects that are quite convincing and do the job. Um, and, and your brain often sees model effects and goes, okay, I know it's not real, but that, that's a good model effect. And then you move on. You know, when you see the Dalek city and the, the first Dalek story, you're not sitting there going, oh, it's only a model, and therefore I'm completely out of the story. <laughs> you're looking at it going, actually, that model is quite good because it's got loads of um, different layers to it. And it's really intricate. And this tells us that this city was not built by the beings who live beneath it. And, you know, it's, it informs you. But replacing it with CGI, you, it's a lot less forgiving when you get to the Uncanny Valley because you start going... It's unconvincing CGI, therefore it's not real, therefore I'm taken out of the moment. The um, the special effects for the Enlightenment DVD were terrible, and I, I just didn't see the point of them. And then you watch the special edition 20 years later, and those special effects and CGIs have aged equally badly. So at that point they need to be re-replaced, like is happening with the Five Doctors. So I just prefer to stick with the originals whenever I can. I'm sure that the the new Five Doctors, I mean, I'll, I'll watch the Five Doctors for any excuse, and that'll be that'll be a lovely excuse to watch it. But again, there's not a single effect in the Five Doctors that I think it looks bad. I think that the the rotating prism looks straight out of Superman Two. It looks gorgeous, mm-hmm. and it's never been bettered. It's just different. You know, the big Mister Whippy floating ice cream thing was interesting, but it didn't add anything to it. And the new one, I think, is a bit literal. It's a bit like uh, let's build a capsule. So, but we'll see. We'll see. I'll, I'll, I will approach it with an open mind. And hopefully we'll be able to have an excuse to rewatch Snake Dance just for something in the last five minutes. I'll just say in defense of the Phantom Zone effect from Richard Donner's Superman, you say Superman 2, the same Phantom Zone effect as seen as Superman the original because they were shot yeah. back to back simultaneously until Richard Donner was fired and they replaced him with Richard Lester who turned Superman 2 into a slapstick comedy as if the Beatles were in it. But... Who is one of the background faces of the Kryptonian judges sentencing General Zod and his accomplices to the Phantom Zone, but one William Russell? The very first time that I would have seen William Russell in anything was Superman on the big screen in December 1978. So that was my original introduction to the world of Doctor Who right there. And he doesn't have any dialogue, does he? He's one of the voices who says, Guilty! So, so he only has that, okay. His enormous face is projected on the screen behind Marlon Brando. And, he's one, and when I'm five years old, those, he, those enormous heads saying guilty scare me as much as Tegan's eyes of the snake dance cliff. But that is William Russell. This council has no hesitation in proclaiming you all guilty. 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 I'd never thought of that because between that and The Great Escape. So William Russell's in The Great Escape as well. One of the last surviving cast members. And he doesn't have, I think he doesn't have any dialogue. I think it was all cut. Or if he does, it's only like supportive, like yes and no and stuff like that. No, he he has a very good line. When James Coburn is bringing his steamer trunk into the tunnel to escape, William Russell's character says, what do you have in there? A piano or something like that? It's, it's, It's a funny witty line. It's a small part, but he does have recognizable dialogue. 
you know, on his behalf, don't they know who he is? Is is it's it's Ian Bloody Chesterton for God's sake? You know, surely he's the star of the show as much as Jonathan Morris is the star of Snake Dance because he's the one I recognise, not the other actors, not all those ones who've got Oscars and stuff like that. Steve McQueen, James Garner, <laughs> Donald Pleasance, the guy from Warriors of the Deep, and yeah. William Russell. See, I, I grew in a I grew up in a household where that's all we did is we watch movies and then my mum would go, "Oh, there's what's his name from Thingy," and that's how my brain has grown up watching TV, getting distracted, and then going back into the thing, going, "No one else knows the show that you're referencing or the actor you're pointing out. No one cares because we're watching Rogue One. They don't care that it's Richard Franklin." Shut up. I didn't even realize that was uh, Mikey Yates in Rogue One until the third time that I saw it. But I will say the very first time that I watched The Great Escape was because I wanted to see Nigel Stock in something that was not time flight. <laughs> That's a really good reason. <laughs> All right. On that note, I am off to get uh, my uh, Friday afternoon viewing of Oppenheimer. And we're not going to have time for 20 questions. But, Jim, you are going to be back on this show real soon. I have a good cluster of your episodes coming up within the next few months. So we'll be hearing a lot more of you, thankfully. And I mean, of course, we will be hearing, I cannot thank you enough for your contributions to this show, the logo, <laughs> uh, the, you're doing a reading for me that's coming up very soon. You have um, done some original musical numbers and we haven't heard the last of those. So you are a huge part of the show, Jim. Thanks again for everything. You're very welcome. And I hope the, uh, hope you enjoy the cinema. I hope you have a blast. Oh, you know, I've got half a mind to cut out that joke on the grounds of bad taste, but I'm going to leave it in. <laughs> hey, I didn't start the fire. All right. I think he hurt Joe Frazier. I think Joe is hurt. Angie Dundee, Ali's trainer right next to me, is saying it. You may hear him. Down goes Frazier. Down goes Frazier. Down goes Frazier. The heavyweight champion is taking the mandatory eight count, and Foreman is as poised as can be in a neutral corner. He is as poised as can be. We have a minute left in this first round, and already this fight is proving out what some have expected. Doctor Who, Snake Dance by Terence Dix, televised as Snake Dance, teleplay by Christopher Bailey, televised in January 1983, paperback release date May 3rd, 1984, target book number 83, cover artist Andrew Skilleter. The TARDIS arrives on the planet Manessa, much to the Doctor's surprise because Tegan has mysteriously set the coordinates. But Tegan, once again a member of the TARDIS crew, is not her own boss. An unsuspecting medium for the sinister Mara, she enables the evil exile to return to his home planet. On Manessa, the ten-yearly celebration of the Mara's banishment is about to take place. Only the Doctor realizes that this could in fact mark the spectacular revival of a reign of terror. But no one will heed his warning. Similar to his novelization of Kinda, episode 83 of this podcast, Terence Dix's work adapting Snake Dance, a layered, challenging script about the Mara, seems to be punching under its weight. Terence writes in his usual short, punchy sentences, describing the action and characters with extreme economy, 
But Bailey's work always seems to be crying out for more experimental prose, more internal thought processes, more history, and more backstory. The only time Terence ever seems to be aiming for the literary with this adaptation is the title of Chapter 6, Dinner with Ambril, which is rather close to the early 80s art house film My Dinner with Andre, absent any allusions to The Little Prince or The Black Forest, or Wallace Shawn's witty voiceovers. The life of a playwright is tough. It's not easy, as some people seem to think. You work hard writing plays, and nobody puts them on. You take up other lines of work to try to make a living. I became an actor, and people don't hire you. So you just spend your days doing the errands of your trade. Today, I'd had to be up by 10 in the morning. And bearing in mind that both of my parents were New York City public school teachers living in suburbia, they were already two hours into the school day and five hours into their day by 10 in the morning. That line gave them no end of amusement. However, looking at Snake Dance, even for a slim book, lacking extra insights into the script, it's fun to see what Terence does in adding tricks from his own novelization toolbox to Christopher Bailey's more elegant story. Terence never misses an opportunity to comment on or gently lampoon an obvious plot device. When the TARDIS lands off course on Manessa, and just about every episode of season 20 involves the TARDIS being drawn off course or otherwise attacked, Nyssa, quote, felt no great surprise. In her experience, the TARDIS was very seldom where it was supposed to be. And after describing the Doctor's customary outfit, Terence uses an uncharacteristic segue to show off Nyssa's new TV duds. At the moment, quote, it wasn't the Doctor's appearance, but Nyssa's own which concerned her, and contrasts that with Davison's characteristic TV impatience. Quote, the effect of the new outfit was both colorful and striking, but it didn't make the slightest impression on him. Ha! Peter Davison, by the way, will do exactly that sort of acting in Enlightenment later in TV's season 20. Later in the book, Nyssa knows she has to look for the missing doctor in captivity because she could assume that he was, quote, A, in trouble, and B, probably locked up. Once we get to Manessa, Terence has as much enjoyment as he can with the TV characters, who are much more lively and lived in in Snake Dance than in many other stories of the era, or at least that was the argument I made to Jim earlier in the program. Lady Tana, the bored wife of an interplanetary dignitary, seems to have much of Terence's sympathy, although his calling her handsome, in a book released shortly after Arc of Infinity, where a Gallifreyan time lady was also handsome, seems a bit lazy, but that's made up for with a lengthy description of how she has to spend her days, punctuated by, quote, Tana was frequently bored to extinction by her official duties, but over the years she had learned not to show it, or by being told that, even after falling on the floor, she still, quote, managed to look dignified. Anytime Terence chooses to set a scene from Tana's point of view, you know you're in for good stuff. Ambril, too, benefits in the book from Terence's observational eye. We learn that as director of architecture on Manessa, and the only government official we meet on the planet, he, quote, could have resisted bribes or threats, but to watch the wanton destruction of irreplaceable antiques was more than he could bear. Terence also makes several allusions to a death penalty, 
or other forms of cruel and unusual punishment on Manessa, which is perhaps Terence's political realist way of suggesting that the Star Trekian federation of the story is not nearly as utopian as we might be led to believe. Turning back to Amberl, of course, let's take a listen to my favorite scene on television, which Jim and I discussed earlier. That's enough. How can minds meet? How indeed. Wishing mystical mumbo-jumbo. What about the snake dances? That appeals to a certain type of mind. Primitive, lazy, uneducated minds. Even my assistant here isn't immune. But you'll find that the legend becomes more and more vague the closer it approaches anything resembling any factual detail. Now, take this as an example. It dates from the middle Sumerian era, and unusually is mentioned quite specifically in the legend. Well, there can be no doubt. The references to the six faces of delusion. Yeah, now, now count. One, two, three, four, five. You will observe there are five faces, not six, as the legend would have it. Now, my point is this. I do find it quite extraordinarily difficult to take seriously a legend that cannot even count accurately. Hmm. Of course, artistically speaking, it's an entirely different matter. The piece is exquisite. An undoubted masterpiece. What is it? Hmm? Headdress. Try it on. What? Try it on. Certainly not. Whatever for. Please, I want to show you something. Then I'll go and leave you in peace. Hmm. Very well. Now, count the faces again. What does he says? One, two, three, four, five. And one makes six. The sixth face of delusion is the wearer's own. That was probably the idea, don't you think? Get out! Run! Get out! Terence in the rest of the book shows off his usual flair for words and his criminally underrated ability to describe a good action scene. Here in the aftermath of a fistfight, he says the room, quote, seemed full of a sprawling pile of bodies. He's also expert at taking a tight budget and explaining why, say, in the universe of Doctor Who, prisoners have to be held captive in a corridor or a security kitchen. Quote, Ambrose's work was his life and he spent most of his waking hours in his office. At the far end of the room was a dining area and a table upon which a servant was laying dinner. Only on a TV budget in 1982 when this was shot would a government official host a dinner party in his office, but Terence makes it seem like a conscious choice by the character rather than an improbable budget saver. That's a pretty remarkable feat for one short sentence. Terence also has a particular skill at inventing mini cliffhanger moments to end chapters. Unlike Eric Sayward, who in The Visitation used more literary styles, and unlike John Lucarotti, who we're going to meet in a few more weeks on Doctor Who literature, and who will end chapters more similar to Sayward, ending chapters at offbeat moments with sarcastic reaction shots, Terence is more of a page-turner, creating a moment of tension where there was none on TV. So chapter one ends with, quote, the battle for Tegan's mind was about to begin, while chapter two ends only by finding and confronting the Mara once again could the Doctor free Tegan's mind from the evil within. Okay, that's the exact same ending for chapter two as chapter one, but it's more interesting than the corresponding TV shot of three actors approaching a painted styrofoam cave mouth. One thing missing from the book is the rest of part four. We know from the DVD release with its production notes Hello, James Curie Smith, and its deleted scenes. That part four was scripted to run a lot longer than it did, and that much material had to be cut for television. Terence restores a few cut lines to the manuscript in the last three chapters, 
and adds a few paragraphs on to the final televised scene, which ends so abruptly on the edit. But the DVD contains an additional final scene, really an extended three-minute edit, showing us that Dugdale survives. It's left kind of ambiguous in the book, with a delightfully awkward ceremony honoring the Doctor and Nyssa, while a recovered Lon and Ambril both try to apologize to the Doctor while still saving face, and with Peter Davison getting one last moment of charm in the final shot, I can see why this was cut from TV, both for time and pacing, but it would have made a wonderful epilogue to the book, especially with Terence getting to have more fun explaining both Lon's and Ambrose's conflicted mindsets during that ceremony. So Snake Dance in the end is a competent book, with Terence's usual expert technical skills as a writer of children's fiction, but this is strictly run-of-the-mill product for him. We never did get our definitive Doctor Who novel about the Mara, but this is not a bad way to spend 120 pages. Next time on Doctor Who Literature, well, it's taken us long enough to get here. Book 85, the first target book with a female author to date, and the first Doctor Who story scripted by a female writer in season 20. We have a very special guest on next week, an expert in feminist studies, and somebody who is going to break down the script for us and explain to us which lines appear to have actually been written by Barbara Clegg and which lines appear to have been grafted on by Eric Sayward. She is a first-time guest on Doctor Who literature. She is a first-time watcher of classic Doctor Who. She is, of course, my daughter Callie, 13 years old. Next week, joining us on Doctor Who literature to discuss the novelization of enlightenment. Thank you for joining me on another episode of the Doctor Who Literature Podcast. This podcast is produced by David Barsky, Jim Sangster, and yours truly. This week's episode was written and edited by me. Our logo was designed by Jim Sangster, who is also my special guest this week. This podcast can be found on most of your podcast apps of choice. You can find all past episodes at podcasters.spotify.com slash pod slash show slash Doctor Who Lit. It really helps. If you rate five stars and subscribe, you can find me on Twitter, or as Musk is calling it now for some reason, X at Doctor Who Novels, that's DR Who Novels, and also on Mastodon, DR Who Novels at Mastodon.social, and on email at Doctor Who Literature, that's DR Who Literature at gmail.com. Please drop me a line with your comments, questions, and suggestions. Thank you for listening, and whatever you do, keep turning the pages.
Direction point. Direction point. A Doctor Who Podcast Network.